Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Gaffney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. Well, we are going to be talking about the owner's manual that a dear friend of mine and very, very much valued longtime colleague, Mike Waller, has written about two of our most important national security agencies, the Central Intelligence Agency and the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And um, the owner's manual suggests that there's a lot wrong with both of those agencies. They are not performing as they need to. And the consequences, the dire implications of that being the case, and, and not just at the present moment, alas, but for quite some time, can hardly be overstated. Uh, Mike is, uh, among other things, a very distinguished uh, professor and author of countless essays, as well as uh, a number of important books. He has been um, associated with our Center for Security Policy for I've lost track of how many years now, but it's been a long time. He is uh, our sort of duty expert on asymmetric warfare. And that is one of the things that I think we're going to find is very much being waged against us. And we are not protected against it as we should be by the CIA and FBI. The book's title is Big Intel, How the CIA and FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. Mike Waller, it's a treat to have you back, and congratulations on this magnum opus. Uh, it is not your first book by any means, but it may be your most important one, because I think what it's giving us insights into is a catastrophe for our national security, and it urgently requires writing of the ship. And we'll be talking about uh, both how we got to this point and what that will entail with you in the course of this hour. Thank you for giving us so generously of your time and welcome back to Securing America. It's great to be back with you, Frank. So let's begin more or less at the beginning, Mike. Um, I think you kick off your treatment of the kind of assault we've been under for over a century now um, with the coming to power of uh, the Soviet Communist Party, uh, the uh, unlamented late uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Um, give us sort of the context for um, communism and its, uh, well, asymmetric warfare that uh, turns out to have been waged against us quite successfully for quite a long time. This was the big discovery in researching big intel was was i'd set out to just write about the wokeness of today the, the you know critical theory that's embedded the cia and the fbi today and what to do about it and then found i followed diana west's red thread backward and found that it began a hundred years ago so this was nothing new and it was nothing happenstance it was an assault that was planned really on on uh, Western Europe by the Soviets after World War One, And then when Hitler rose in Germany, the very agents and operatives and, and intellectuals and hangers-on who were developing this cultural Marxism, meaning raising Marxism through cultural means and, and, and incessant attacks on culture, they came to America. And we sheltered them here. They set up shop here. They educated our educators and then developed their theories even further to tear us apart from within. Yeah. And that's how it this, this would be the so-called Frankfurt School uh, that uh, fled Germany, was welcomed here, uh, I think, to Columbia University's Teachers College. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So they set up to teach the teachers. And it was with the sponsorship of even back then, the National Education Association, the head of it, who went to this, went to Stalin's Soviet Union and wrote a six-part series in the New Republic of how wonderful Stalin's education system was, and then he designed something for American kids. This is the, the head of the NEA back in the 1930s. So the idea was to teach the teachers and to influence the influencers over time. Now, why this is so important, Mike, as you know, as a teacher yourself of quite a number of years, 
uh, is that by so doing, you can get at um, a critical target audience for uh, communists and really other totalitarians as well, namely the youth of a nation. No? Yeah. Yeah. And this is without them even realizing that they're being hit like this. They are just being raised and taught to feel this is something normal. And the whole idea of critical theory is to break society apart, which means turning children against their parents, destroying the nuclear family, destroying the whole extended family and the village or town support system and the church support system and, and the whole idea of, of patriotism or, or the Judeo-Christian heritage and even the Greco-Roman foundations of our democratic republic. This is all part of what critical theory and, and, it's, it's, and cultural Marxism is all about. So that we attack ourselves and we don't believe in ourselves anymore. And that allows the enemy to come in and, and take over our way of thinking and, and reinterpret our founding to be something that it was never supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, divide and conquer strategy. And I, I wanted to come back to something you touched on there a moment ago, Mike, because it's a term that I, I find uh, not terribly helpful in illuminating who these folks are, what, what the real agenda is. And that's this term woke. Um, I've been told that that's actually a, a term out of Mao's playbook, um, that uh, having people awakened to this uh, cultural agenda of his was uh, very much part and parcel of the cultural revolution, as they called it, that uh, that he engaged in. Does it actually predate Mao's time and, uh, you know, have, you know, uh, ties to the Soviets? as well yeah i didn't i didn't trace the term woke i only traced it as far as sort of inner city vernacular that's been adopted to to determine an attitude but it wouldn't be surprising at all in fact it would be expected to see if that there might be maoist roots to this because it was american maoists who were back in the 50s back in the 40s who loved the ideas that mao was bringing because he was a a cultural alternative to stalin and he was really making it happen. And he, in their eyes, had a bright following. He was not from the Western traditions at all. And actually, the only Western traditions that Mao embraced was, was the German development you know, through Marx and Engels and the Russian development through Lenin. So he, he was sort of expropriating European radical thought into China, and then others were reappropriating it to here. So it would make sense that there's some kind of awakening, as Mao had... had uh, had, uh, had stressed in his much deeper and more profound form of, of indoctrinating people. And he had a real cultural revolution at the same time that American, the American New Left had its cultural revolution, which was all based on um, not just bohemianism and, and rebellion, but, all, but the theoretical base of critical theory. Mm -hmm. and, and at the end of the day, this is Marxism. Let's be clear. And I, I, I do want to go back, Mike, we're going to have to take a break here in a moment, but I do want to go back to um, something you also alluded to, uh, and that is our friend Diana West's elegant uh, treatment, first, I think, in American Betrayal, and then in uh, a short monograph she did called uh, The Red Thread. Give us a sense, if you could, of um, how instrumental the... Uh, embrace of the Soviet Union was by Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, after years of uh, non-recognition by successive American presidents. Uh, FDR decided he would normalize relations with them on the basis of a condition, and it's a, it's a very interesting proposition. Um, Mike, as I say, we have to take just a short break here for a moment, but when we come back, I'd, I'd like to get your you know, level setting, for want of a better term, on how, with FDR, this uh, penetration actually began. That and more. Straight ahead. Stay tuned. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Last Wednesday, FBI Director Christopher Wray warned Congress that the Chinese Communist Party plans to use cyber attacks to, quote, wreak havoc, unquote, on America's critical infrastructure. That same day, the Justice Department announced just such a Chinese attack had been thwarted. 
Frankly, raised warning sounds more like butt covering than the needed truth-telling and call to action concerning the people's war against us that the CCP declared in 2019. Indeed, Ray seems unconcerned about such threats as thousands of apparent Chinese military personnel coming across our borders, the multiple biolabs the CCP is likely operating here, or the 400 high-voltage transformers made in China, now literally inside the wire of our electric grid. My colleague Mike Waller's new bestseller, Big Intel, compellingly argues that we must break up the FBI, rebuilding under new leadership the elements needed to fight our actual enemies, foreign and domestic. Amen. This is Frank After. Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Gaffney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. Well, we are going to be talking about the owner's manual that a dear friend of mine and very, very much valued longtime colleague, Mike Waller has written about two of our most important national security agencies, the Central Intelligence Agency and the Federal Bureau of Investigations. And um, the owner's manual suggests that there's a lot wrong with both of those agencies. They are not performing as they need to. And the consequences, the dire implications of that being the case, and, and not just at the present moment, alas, but for quite some time, can hardly be overstated. Uh, Mike is, uh, among other things, a very distinguished uh, professor and author of uh, countless essays, as well as uh, a number of important books. He has been um, associated with our Center for Security Policy for, I've lost track of how many years now, but it's been a long time. He is uh, our sort of duty expert on asymmetric warfare. And that is one of the things that I think we're going to find is very much being waged against us. And we are not protected against it as we should be by the CIA and FBI. The book's title is Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. Mike Weller, it's a treat to have you back and congratulations on this magnum opus. Uh, it is not your first book by any means, but it may be your most important one because I think what it's giving us insights into is a catastrophe for our national security, and it urgently requires writing of the ship. And we'll be talking about uh, both how we got to this point and what that will entail with you in the course of this hour. Thank you for giving us so generously of your time, and welcome back to Securing America. It's great to be back with you, Frank. So let's begin more or less at the beginning, Mike. Um, I think you kick off your treatment of the kind of assault we've been under for over a century now um, with the coming to power of uh, the Soviet Communist Party, uh, the uh, unlamented late uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Um, give us sort of the context for um, communism and its, uh, well, asymmetric warfare that uh, turns out to have been waged against us quite successfully for quite a long time. This was the big uh, discovery in researching Big Intel was, was I'd set out to just write about the wokeness of today with the you know, critical theory that's embedded the CIA and the FBI today and what to do about it. And then found, I followed Diana West's red thread backward and found that it began a hundred years ago. So this was nothing new and it was nothing happenstance. It was an assault that was planned really on, on Western Europe by the Soviets after World War I. And then when Hitler rose in Germany, the very agents and operatives and, and intellectuals and hangers-on who were developing this cultural Marxism meaning raging Marxism through cultural means and, and, and incessant attacks on culture. They came to America and we sheltered them here. They set up shop here. They educated our educators and then developed their theories even further to tear us apart from within. 
and that's how it arrived. This would be the so-called Frankfurt School uh, that uh, fled Germany, was welcomed here, uh, I think, to Columbia University's Teachers College. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So they set up to teach the teachers. And it was with the sponsorship of, even back then, the National Education Association, the head of it, who went to this, went to Stalin's Soviet Union and wrote a six-part series in the New Republic of how wonderful Stalin's education system was. And then he designed something for American kids. This is the, the head of the NEA back in the 1930s. So the idea was to teach the teachers and to influence the influencers over time. Now, why this is so important, Mike, as you know, as a teacher yourself of quite a number of years, uh, is that by so doing, you can get at um, a critical target audience for uh, communists and really other totalitarians as well, namely the youth of a nation. No? Yeah. Yeah. And this is without them even realizing that they're being hit like this. They are just being raised and taught to feel this is something normal. And the whole idea of critical theory is to break society apart, which means turning children against their parents, destroying the nuclear family, destroying the whole extended family and the village or town support system and the church support system and, and the whole idea of, of patriotism or, or the Judeo-Christian heritage and even the Greco-Roman foundations of our democratic republic. This is all part of what critical theory and, and, it's, it's, and cultural Marxism is all about. So that we attack ourselves and we don't believe in ourselves anymore. And that allows the enemy to come in and, and take over our way of thinking and, and reinterpret our founding to be something that it was never supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, divide and conquer strategy. And I, I wanted to come back to something you touched on there a moment ago, Mike, because it's a term that I, I find uh, not terribly helpful in illuminating who these folks are, what, what the real agenda is. And that's this term woke. Um, I, I've been told that that's actually a, a term out of Mao's playbook, um, that uh, having people awakened to this uh, cultural agenda of his was uh, very much part and parcel of the cultural revolution as they called it, that uh, that he engaged in. Does it actually predate Mao's time and, uh, you know, have, you know, uh, ties to the Soviets as well? Yeah, I, did, I didn't trace the term woke. I only traced it as far as sort of inner city vernacular that's been adopted to, to determine an attitude. But it wouldn't be surprising at all. In fact, it would be expected to see if that there might be Maoist roots to this because it was American Maoists who were, back in the 50s, back in the 40s, who loved the ideas that Mao was bringing because he was a, a cultural alternative to Stalin and he was really making it happen. And he, in their eyes, had a bright following. He was not from the Western traditions at all. Actually, the only Western traditions that Mao embraced was, was the German development you know, through Marx and Engels and the Russian development through Lenin. So he, he was sort of expropriating European radical thought into China, and then others were reappropriating it to here. So it would make sense that there's some kind of awakening, as Mao had had uh, had, uh, had stressed in his much deeper and more profound form of, of indoctrinating people. And he had a real cultural revolution at the same time that American, the American New Left had its cultural revolution, which was all based on uh, not just bohemianism and, and rebellion, but, all, but the theoretical base of critical theory. Mm -hmm. And and at the end of the day, this is Marxism, let's be clear. And I, I do want to go back, Mike, we're going to have to take a break here in a moment, but I do want to go back to um, something you also alluded to, uh, and that is our friend Diana West's elegant uh, treatment, first, I think, in American Betrayal, and then in uh, a short monograph she did called uh, The Red Thread. Give us a sense, if you could, of um, how instrumental the uh, embrace of the Soviet Union was by Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, after years of uh, non-recognition by successive American presidents, uh, FDR decided he would normalize relations with them on the basis of a condition 
and it's a, it's a very interesting proposition. Um, Mike, as I say, we have to take just a short break here for a moment, but when we come back, I'd, I'd like to get your, you know, level setting, for want of a better term, on how, with FDR, this uh, penetration actually began. That and more. Straight ahead. Stay tuned. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, this new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. Welcome back. It's a point of uh, particular personal privilege, as well as uh, a delight to be able to share with you a dear friend and longtime colleague, Mike Waller, for a full hour, but especially so because we're talking about his important new book. I believe it is a bestseller these days at Amazon and certainly should be. It is entitled Big Intel, How the CIA and FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. Uh, Mike, we've been talking about the issues that sort of birthed the opportunity for, well, the kind of fundamental transformation that your subtitle describes. Uh, to some extent in that uh, New Deal era and, and certainly during World War II, and then in earnest in the aftermath of them during the Cold War period. Give us a read out quickly. We've got... 11 minutes or so to do it in, uh, of how the Soviet Communist Party and subsequently the Chinese Communist Party have pulled this incredible feat off. It's really admirable to see what they did in terms of just looking at the technology of it and the strategy behind it and so forth. What the Soviets were doing, and, and they thought they thought in very different ways than we do. We look at sort of the next the next quarterly report or the next election cycle. And that's sort of the length of our strategy. The Soviets at this meeting in 1922, where they created what became the Frankfurt School that gave us critical theory and wokeism, cultural Marxism. They said at the time, this is going to outlast all of us. This is going to take generations. So they knew that they would not be alive to see the fruits of what they were setting out in 1922. Well, imagine that. Again, with a focus immediately on Western Europe. Yeah. Us as kind um, of an afterthought. Both World War I Germany. So this is pre-Hitler Germany, Weimar Germany, where it, the country is demoralized. It's a very proud uh, martial society, very highly cultured society, the, 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 the core of civilization of Central Europe, and it's been smashed. And so people are calling into question everything about, do they want to have a monarchy? No, they no longer want it to have one. They've Germans of different states, so they didn't have a real German-German identity. They still identified with whatever principality or state they were from. So the Bohemian movement was going wild. You had a big sex and drug culture movement going on even then in the 1920s. And Berlin was the most decadent city in all of Europe. So this was the perfect place for the Soviets to go back to the 1843 Karl Marx. So Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, where we think of Marx and Marxism, in 1848, but five years earlier, he was not doing economics, he was doing culture. How do we overthrow everything and destroy everything quickly? And he said, let's do it through cultural warfare, tearing down every, all these institutions and everything that you know you and I believe is good, yeah. rip it apart. Including, as you said earlier, the nuclear family as a building block of all else. Exactly. So, so the, the term cultural Marxism comes from Karl Marx himself in 1843. He didn't name it after himself, but but he set it out in 1843. But if you go on a, you know, 
certain places now they're calling it a conspiracy theory, but the cultural Marxists are calling it a conspiracy theory. But it began, and the Bolsheviks revived this after World War One, saying we Germany's our target because Germany had been fighting Russia in World War One, and and Germany's our target. Let's rip it apart. Let's tear out the center of the country by making things so extreme and polarizing the country that we'll come in and then wage our Marxist revolution on a culturally destroyed Germany. And Hitler beat them to the punch. So right before he began his repression, they said, we're going to get out of here. So they moved to other European countries and a number of them. Came could could I just ask you a question on that, Mike? Just, yeah. just again, for level setting purposes, uh, National Socialism was the name of the party that Adolf Hitler led. Uh, we have been inculcated with this idea that he was a right-wing totalitarian, not a communist or socialist. And he certainly went after communists as part of his you know, rise to and maintaining power. But um, just quickly, level set on that, if you would. Um, is there really such a thing as this kind of right-wing totalitarianism? Well, right-wing, right-wing, left-wing was was set up by the in the French Revolution, which Karl Marx really loved. He loved the murderous part of the French Revolution. He then used it. Lenin used it. So it's really a communist term, left-wing versus right-wing. But let's let's take socialism. If they call themselves socialists, let's take them at their word that they're socialists. That would be the Marxists. That would be Benito Mussolini in Italy. He, he developed fascism out of his attraction to Marxism. He just so it's really a variation on the theme of you know the communist agenda, if not in all of its particulars, certainly in terms of its larger purpose. No? Yeah, yeah, and that and this is where the, the 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 nationalism versus internationalism. So if you look at Marxism as international socialism, because they want a globalist revolution, whereas Hitler and Mussolini were nationalists, they wanted it socialist revolution in Italy and Germany with their own supremacy. And they were not, they were concerned with expanding empire, but they were not concerned with global revolution. And that's the big difference between them. I mean, even uh, Gruppenführer Müller of, of, the, of the Gestapo, he, he designed the Gestapo after the Bolshevik secret police. He actually went to Soviet Russia to study how to do, how to do, a, how to set up a good Gestapo. So there's all of these. And, and they were allies until Hitler turned on. Uh, yeah. Stalin. Yeah, you know, they were allies in Lebensraum. Yep. Yeah, they were allies. I, I, I'm sorry. I've asked you to talk a little bit about this fundamental transformation, and it's going to get away from this. But I, I so appreciate your understanding of history. But it, it, give us again um, this sense of the cultural Marxists having gotten into our educational system, having uh, the the instruments of uh, well, basically cultural warfare available to them, including, of course, critical race theory. Um, how did they get not only so deeply into so many of our institutions, but including these critical national security assets, the CIA and FBI? Marxists know that they cannot take over. They can't win by elections. So they borrow in. So it's not the quantity of them in terms of votes. It's the quantity of them in terms of where they can infiltrate, where they can set up shop, where they can recruit and attract more and more followers, and then where they can change people's whole worldviews. So this means you put them in with their teachers, where they can teach the teachers to teach other people. You put them in in journalism, you put them in Hollywood and entertainment and music and, and live performances and art. You put them in uh, culture, you have them infiltrate churches. Remember, two of the Bolshevik leaders had been seminarians. Stalin was an actual seminarian in the Georgian Orthodox Church. And the KGB founder Felix Trzinski was about to go into Catholic seminary school in Poland. So, so they knew how to, how to evangelize, but they'd said non-servium. They did it for the purposes of evil. So this was all second nature to them. And they said, let's we'll penetrate the churches and the seminaries. So that within a generation, the rot will be in there. And we've seen the rot in various, especially Christian de denominations uh, and in Judaism. And then, and then, so, and then that will just, you know, metastasize further and further. So what do we have now a few generations later? We have what we have. This meant also the intelligence community. So that when in the 1930s, you had these critical theorists from 
all over Europe now, cultural Marxists brought to America. We don't have a foreign intelligence service and the British come to us and say, let's help you set up your own intelligence service. Uh, we did, while Bill Donovan was recruited to set up the Office of Strategic Services, and he said we need native speakers who of these countries who know the countries, who have networks back there, and who have great ideas. Let's recruit them. He inadvertently brought in a lot of Comintern people, a lot of Soviet loyalists, a lot of those who had broken with Stalin, but they still wanted communist revolution worldwide. This they is the Communist International. Yeah, so they came into the Office of Strategic Services as native German linguists and native, you know, Serbian linguists. And you na name the language, they had the linguists and the, and the um, they had people inside behind the, behind enemy lines. And so it was very useful to us. Now, it makes sense to be able to use such people as intelligence assets if they're working for you. But what Stalin had in mind was to create a post-war world along his lines along international communist lines, and to affect American decision-making and British decision-making so that they would reflect what Stalin wanted and not what what the United States wants. Right. So with that as a basis for populating not just the OSS, but as it evolved into the Central Intelligence Agency back in 1947, as I recall, um, is that a critical element, personnel is policy, as we say, uh, being an inst instrument of essentially subverting uh, the CIA and, and was a similar kind of thing afoot with the FBI during this period as well? The Soviets tried to penetrate the FBI, but Hoover was so, he ran the FBI so tightly and he recruited FBI people who were really upright. I mean, being personally upright was a key uh, criterion for being admitted in the FBI as an agent. That the FBI was was impossible to penetrate. His rigidity. Now it's interesting, Mike, and and I know you talk about this in the book. Uh, the rap on uh, J. Edgar Hoover is that he was anything but upright in his own personal life and peculiarities. What's your sense of that? And how did that bear on his performance? Well, uh, uh, there were there were various stories about him. And we look at this in big intel. But then I was relying on the work of other journalists and scholars who did not like J. Edgar Hoover and what they had to say. And they found, for example, that the, the stories of him being a closet homosexual and a crossdresser and all that were false. There's no evidence to show any of that. The, All right. The, Hold that thought, because I, I want to pick up on the other side. One more break um, of the genesis of the problem within the FBI, if not on J. Edgar Hoover's watch, who's be right back with more with Mike Waller. Stay tuned. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Last Wednesday, FBI Director Christopher Wray warned Congress that the Chinese Communist Party plans to use cyber attacks to, quote, wreak havoc, unquote, on America's critical infrastructure. That same day, the Justice Department announced just such a Chinese attack had been thwarted. Frankly, Ray's warning sounds more like butt-covering than the needed truth-telling and call-to-action concerning the people's war against us that the CCP declared in 2019. Indeed, Ray seems unconcerned about such threats as thousands of apparent Chinese military personnel coming across our borders, the multiple biolabs the CCP is likely operating here, or the 400 high-voltage transformers made in China, now literally inside the wire of our electric grid. My colleague Mike Waller's new bestseller, Big Intel, compellingly argues that we must break up the FBI, rebuilding under new leadership the elements needed to fight our actual enemies, foreign and domestic. Amen. This is Frank Afton. Michael Waller is in the house virtually, I'm very pleased to say, a man who is one of our senior associates at the Center for Security Policy, the author of a brand new and tremendously important book, Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from being Cold War heroes 
to deep state villains. Uh, and Mike, this history of what has happened to first the FBI, I guess, and then uh, to the OSS when it uh, emerged in World War II and ultimately became over time the CIA. But it began back, according to our friend Diana West, and I think your research as well, um, in the first FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. Did it not? And tell us how. It did. The, the President Woodrow Wilson, for example, refused to recognize the Soviet Union diplomatically after the Bolsheviks took power because they were self-described as a subversive force out to overthrow our constitution. So he's, there's no way. So for, you know, if, if Wilson ever did anything right, it was that. And then you had all the three successive presidents, all Republicans had the same approach, no recognition of the USSR. But then when FDR came in, he recognized the Soviet Union diplomatically, which was vital to their legitimacy and to their economic survival. And he had one condition, you know, don't subvert us. But that wasn't Roosevelt's initiative. That was J. Edgar Hoover's initiative, the FBI director, because he knew what was happening. He'd been warning about this since 1920. But we had no counterintelligence service at the time to monitor this. We didn't have laws to execute to get rid of these individuals. So really, this just opened the doors for Stalin to send uh, not just more agents into this country, but to have embassies and consulates in Washington and New York and San Francisco, where they could run real formal spy operations on the ground and run circles around us. Now, Mike, as I understand it, um, presumably this idea of FDR's with the, you know, sort of afterthought caveat, um, don't subvert us, um, was an early manifestation of the people he surrounded himself with, um, who turned out in some cases to be actual Soviet agents, not just, you know, fellow travelers or sympathizers with the Soviet Union. Um, is that correct? And how did that contribute to the subversion that actually went forward very aggressively once the recognition was delivered? What the New Deal did during the Depression was to create, I mean, among many other things, it created an employment system for Soviet agents to and, and Soviet assets to make a living doing very little work. So they're living off the taxpayer's dime while they're doing their espionage. And now they're networking throughout the entire federal government that's new in terms of the size of a central government and it's expanding, bringing more people in. So they're bringing their friends in on board and, and coordinating them and running them so that the Soviets were clever. They just used the New Deal to fund their operations in the United States. Right. And it led itself to that, didn't it? Because it was more of a collectivist approach uh, to begin with. And as it, uh, you know, sort of metastasized, it gave rise, I think, to the, uh, especially during the war, the bureaucracies that we'll be talking about uh, having become quite deep, deep state uh, in the uh, in the decades uh, that followed. But but um, Harry Hopkins is a particularly interesting character in Diana West's book, um, American Betrayal. He features very prominently. I don't know if he was with Roosevelt back when uh, that recognition was uh, decided, but uh, he certainly played a very pivotal role in the war, not least. Uh, and she, I think, came to the conclusion that he was actually a Soviet agent and some called him the co-president uh, during some of uh, Roosevelt's more infirm periods. Right, he was a co he was a co-president, similar to the way in, uh, you have Biden right now. Well, President Roosevelt, toward the end of World War II, had become almost completely disabled, had severe cognitive decline, and he had other people running his administration, whether or not he really knew it. So, so we see the old uh, the old newsreels of him. He was pretty. He was sharp. He was well scripted. He was, you know, very well spoken. And uh, by the end of it, he was just a shell of a man. So he had living with him in the White House, Harry Hopkins. Now Diana documents how Harry Hopkins was a Soviet agent. Others will argue, and this is where you get into 
into the weeds of intelligence terminology. He wasn't an agent, meaning under total control of the Soviets. He was an asset who the Soviets could count on, but he wasn't under Soviet control. So he wasn't a conscious traitor as a foreign agent. Others will say, no, he was just being being used by other agents regardless, though. And they're all, they're, they're all excellent scholars who have these different points of view. Diana came, you know, came really close, really hardest on this, that he was, he was actually a Soviet control for Roosevelt, running the Roosevelt administration. So regardless, though, no matter which interpretation... But you know, Mike, let me just interrupt you for a second. I mean, you've, you've spent some time, you know, working operations yourself with the agency and certainly uh, very closely involved with a lot of FBI activities over the years, which helps inform this book, Big Intel, by the way, folks. It's an it's a insider's view uh, to an important degree. But Mike, one of the things that our friend Sam Faddis has pointed out, former undercover operative of the CIA um, and a guy who has, I think to his great credit, called Joe Biden based on personal experience, based on tradecraft, based on the terminology of the trade, a quote, controlled asset of the Chinese Communist Party. He, he observes, unquote, he observes that there's no such thing as an uncontrolled asset. You're either a controlled asset or you're a liability because you cannot be counted upon to do what you're told to do. In fact, you may be working for the other team. So it, it it's an interesting question that might inform where you actually come down on Harry Hopkins, that uh, he either had to be controlled and the Soviets had confidence in that, uh, or you know he was at best kind of a fellow traveler. But I think Diana makes a pretty compelling case. He's, he's in the former category. Your thoughts? It's it's really it's really hard to say. It, it's it's. I think her conclusions are sound, but I also think that the conclusions of say Harvey Clare and and others who have looked at this through other through the Benona decrypts or through other Soviet archival material, it's hard to say. But either way, it's safe to say he was a Soviet asset. Whether he was under day to day control, we don't know. And but he was certainly an asset, meaning something they could use whenever they needed his use, which was everything. living living, by the way, folks, this is a little bit of history that's worth noting, living in the White House for, I think, the latter part of his life, which ended uh, shortly before Roosevelt's, as I recall. Anyway, the point is, Mike, that that during the FDR administration, we saw both under the cover of the New Deal and through the networking of uh, agents, if if not Harry Hopkins, certainly Alger Hiss and uh, folks at Treasury and elsewhere, um, people who um, really ran uh, key ops during, among other things, World War II, to the benefit of Stalin and uh, the Soviets, no? Sure. They, and they acted not just as spies to provide secrets to the Soviets. They acted as couriers. They acted as recruiters. They acted as agent spotters. They sized up people for, for, are they frustrated with how America is? Would they like a new socialist alternative? Do they have a vulnerability where we can bring them in? Do they have family connections elsewhere in the government or, or in other countries even? And so this is the perniciousness of these, these networks. So when you have this growing size of central government, you have people bringing in their own friends and, and their own networks with nobody vetting them. Yeah, and Mike, one last point. They also were shaping policy, and that yes. will bring us to you know sort of how we've gotten to the place we are today on the other side of our next short break, uh, which is at hand. And I want to really thank you for a lot of dot connecting that you do in this book, and I think it's just critical that people get the sense of not only where are we now and the trouble that that entails, but how did we get here? So more with the author of Big Intel, Mike Waller, right after this. Welcome back. Mike Waller is in the house, and we're not going to do justice to all that is in his new book, Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. But we're going to try to give you enough so that when we get him back, we have a good launching point for the further discussion about what's happening at the moment. But Mike, just uh, to bring us up to as close to the moment as we can, 
um, we have clearly been witnessing um, an insinuation of influence operations and espionage and wealth subversion by this uh, Chinese Communist Party that makes the old Soviet Party in its heyday pale by comparison, does it not? Absolutely. And, and I don't cover it that much in big intel, but the Chinese Communist Party has been able to make uh, ideology part of culture. And they have been able to reach into our popular culture in ways that they would never permit at home, using technology that they don't allow back home, but creating it with their own companies, with plenty of Americans who will go along to indoctrinate and, and sort of numb the brains of Americans. So TikTok being one of these technologies. Big time. And and we're really seeing it weaponized now, um, not just for the purposes of collecting big data on young people in this country for, I believe, very malevolent purposes, but also, Mike, in, uh, being used to uh, mobilize uh, American kids to a, hate our country, but also to take a pro-Hamas view uh, and even pro-Osama bin Laden. You. Uh, talk a little bit about how that plays into this whole subversion uh, of uh, not just you know the population, but also these intelligence agencies. Yeah, so TikTok not only acts or say provides a platform for these extremist views, but it seems to be channeling them in ways that that the other social media companies are are, are not challenging the real violent, awful stuff. Uh, so it seems to be a state-sponsored or a CCP-sponsored operation as opposed to merely a private Chinese communist company uh, with Americans. So we, we have to look at the whole thing as an op for many reasons. So if they're, if they're using this to mobilize support for Hamas and for, for genocide in Israel, and they're using it to promote violent extremism across the United States and racial hatred and everything else, we're looking at a new kind of high-tech subversion aimed at our popular culture, aimed at a new generation of people through using popular culture and making it cool. So you imagine just, what, 23 years after 9-11, you have now a, an Obama revival. Obama, sorry. Osama bin Laden revival. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't intend that one. But yeah, it's a, so it's a meaning. So Al-Qaeda suddenly becoming cool. And maybe the 9-11 attacks didn't happen, but maybe they should have because we're such a bad society. This is the ultimate in cultural Marxism because it's now you have an, a whole generation wants to destroy everything about its country. And and we see this is going back to your term, woke, uh, you know, tearing down statues, tearing up our history, tearing down you know, our constitutional institutions. But just, Mike, before we run out of time, we got about four minutes, and I want to make sure that you give uh, a quick summary of where two of these critical institutions, the Central Intelligence Agency and the FBI, are now. We Just on the FBI, we, we just had the director of the, CIA, of the Bureau um, testifying, Christopher Wray, before the Congress last week, saying, you know, the Chinese Communist Party uh, is prepared to, quote, wreak havoc, unquote, on our population, our critical infrastructure with cyber attacks. Uh, th this would seem to be at, greatly at odds with how he's been comporting himself with respect to threats like, oh, I don't know, Chinese military personnel coming across the border and bio labs all over the place and 400 Chinese transformers in our electric grid. Who needs cyber warfare when you can just turn the things off? Yeah. Well, it's nice to see the FBI director say that in 2024, but you've been saying it since the 1980s, and you haven't been wrong. You know, you've been you've been properly warning this the whole time, and the whole group at the Center for Security Policy, who you brought in, has been warning about this constantly. So it's taken now decades for the FBI director to admit this. This shows the depth of rot in our counterintelligence community and our national security apparatus if they can't bring themselves to do this. And as we are friends, you know, Ed Timberlake and, 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 and others had said uh, early on in books that the center helped sponsor was that this was happening to us all around us, but the intelligence community wouldn't allow real discussion of it and wouldn't allow assessments to be negative against the Chinese Communist Party. This was a year of the rap. In, including, including 
including, of course, the FBI, which has the responsibility for domestic counterintelligence. And, and Mike, I, it's just appalling to me, as I mentioned those three examples, but uh, it's just appalling to me that we find um, so little effort being made, especially when they're actually now in some fashion acknowledging the threat to the homeland from the Chinese Communist Party. So we can pat them on the back for that, but they really, they've been not doing their jobs. Now, that's not to say certain units within the FBI and certain agents have. They've been doing a fine job, but they've been given no resources effectively and very little leadership and no cover for doing the kind of work they do. So, so, but if you split that out from the FBI and had a real counterintelligence service that would go in strategically as a standing strategic counterintelligence service, that'd be a big plus for America. But you can't do that under the currently branded Bud Light FBI. Right. And and this, just quickly, uh, and we've got a minute, but your recommendations on what you do about the FBI and CIA at this point? So all here in Big Intel, basically there, and the center, this is the Center for Security Policy work going back a couple of years to figure out what to do with this. is it, It's too big. It's, it, it's a great brand, but it's an obsolete brand. It's, and as a second ago, it's sort of the Bud Light of law enforcement now. Let's retire that brand and use the constituent parts of the Bureau that actually serve the purpose for the United States and break them off into either separate agencies or separate, separate standing, smaller, more agile forces, and then and then remove the rest of the positions, get rid of them. Same, divide the CIA into two organizations too, and then, and then get rid of a lot of the personnel because you don't, you just abolish their functions. We don't need as a country, a lot of the, the junk that the CIA is producing. Yeah, operations and analysis, I guess, being the two component parts. Mike, well, this is power such down a... to the states and empower the, the the county sheriffs because they're they're the chief law enforcement officers of their counties, and they can. All of this is another that. day's work. We will be back to you for a further development of it all, Mike. Congratulations on Big Intel. I'm so proud of you. Thanks for the work you do at the Center for Security Policy. I'm proud of that as well, and we'll talk with you in the near future. God bless you, my friend. We'll talk to the rest of you. I hope next time. Until then. Go forth and multiply.